Well, good morning, Lone Oak First Baptist Church. If you're just joining us for the first time in a few weeks, I want to introduce myself. I'm Michael Cabell, and it is my honor, my joy, to serve here as your interim pastor. I've loved being here. You have such an incredible uh, music worship team. Tell you what, I'm in a lot of churches at a lot of different times. I've heard many church worship teams. Uh, Unfortunately, some sound like a herd of cats in a room full of rocking chairs. But this team can sing, can't they? You have a blessing of Mark and Kenny and Patrick and others. Incredible, incredible. Well, we're in the middle, middle of a series called Steadfast, Our Unchanging Commitments. We're talking about even in the time of transition in a church, there's certain commitments we make regardless of the situation we find ourselves to be in. Two weeks ago, we talked about that we are committed to loving the gospel Last week we talked about we're committed to loving the church, and today we come to a text in Mark chapter 2 about we're committed to, bring, to love bringing people to Jesus. We're committed to love bringing people to Jesus. So you find your place there in Mark 2, whether it's on your device or in your Bible. Let's just go to the Lord in prayer, ask Him to speak to us in a mighty way today. Father, we thank You for Your goodness and for Your grace, and I pray right now You would open our hearts, help us to see a picture of Your glory of your son, Jesus, as we, as we open this word, Father. I pray you'd speak through me. Help me to be your messenger to communicate your message to your people for your glory's sake. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. A family with two preschool girls moved in across the road from a dairy farm. The wife at the home said that she wanted to go across the road and invite the new neighbors to church. And so the dairy farmer went across the road, knocked on the door, introduced herself, said she taught Sunday school at a small country church down the road and wanted to know if the two girls would like to go to church. The new family that moved in across the road felt like they could trust her and said, well, sure, I guess our girls can go with you to church. And so for the next several weeks, that dairy farmer would knock on their door, pick up those girls and take them to the small country church every week in, week out. Well, on one Sunday, they took a different route to church that morning, and the girls recognized a house that they knew. It was the house where their cousins lived. And they told the dairy farmer, Sunday school teacher, our cousins live there, and we ought to stop and bring them to church as well. And the dairy farmer just smiled. Not only was she bringing children to church, but now these children had caught a passion for bringing others to church. And my hope this morning is that we catch a passion, a vision, for bringing people to Jesus. This story picks up in Mark chapter 2. It's a story that you're no doubt familiar with about some friends who bring a man to Jesus. And here's what the scripture says. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. People were excited that Jesus is in Capernaum. This is the hometown of Peter, and Peter likely is securing housing for Jesus as he comes into Capernaum. I was in Capernaum about a year and a half ago, and if you've been there before, you'll know outside the city is a big sign that says, Capernaum, the town of Jesus. He spent so much time there and Capernaum. And Peter may have allowed Jesus to stay at his house or maybe his mother-in-law's house or maybe the house of one of his friends or family member. But as people heard Jesus was in town, they gathered. See, that's the thing that Jesus does. When Jesus shows up, people gather. Oh, would that not be true of our churches? 
that because Jesus has shown up, people gather. I saw this a few months ago near where I live in Wilmore, Kentucky, Asbury University, saw this huge outpouring of people gathering to uh, hear about Jesus, to sing about Jesus. My wife and I went the first night and we're in a room of about 800 college students worshiping Jesus. And three nights later, we bring our kids and we had to wait two hours to get into the sanctuary. And about three days later, our kids went with their youth group. And by that point, there were 20,000 people had descended on this little town, all come together, churches in town, lawns in town, people were everywhere just praising Jesus. Wouldn't that be wonderful to see a gathering of people to hear about Jesus? Well, in that town of Capernaum, people are surrounding the house where Jesus is teaching. And it says in verse 3, some men were there who came bringing to him a paralyzed man Carried by four of them. So somewhere in this town is a man who's paralyzed. We don't know how long. Maybe it had been months or years, maybe even decades since something caused his legs to be paralyzed. People in the small town probably knew who he was and seen him begging on the streets. And he has four friends who are convinced that Jesus can heal their friend. And so they pick him up on his mat and they begin to bring him to Jesus. The man was convinced as well that if he could see Jesus, if he could be with Jesus, then his life would be changed forever and healed. And so he brought, he was brought to Jesus. They understood how important it is to bring people to Jesus. You get that. Your church just recently celebrated 50 people being baptized this year. You do a great job of bringing people to Jesus. Each Saturday when I make the drive down to Paducah, I drive past the land between the lakes. Some of you probably enjoy going to that area, Lake Barkley and Kentucky Lake. And uh, Are any of you fishermen in the church? You enjoy uh, fishing? A few of you enjoy fishing? I was talking to uh, Mike before the service, and he said fishing is just, how did he say it? One jerk waiting on another jerk at the end of the line. I don't know. if <laughs> I've never heard that one before. But fishing takes a lot of patience, doesn't it? It takes a lot of knowledge. you got to know where to go. you got to know what kind of fish you're fishing for, what kind of bait you're going to use, what time of day you're going, what season you're going, how to cast it. And if you are waiting there, you know that fishing takes patience. You're waiting on the fish to bite. It takes some skill to reel them in. And once you bring them in, the fish oftentimes are smelly and slimy. And sometimes you get that on your clothes. And sometimes you go back home and you smell just like the fish that you've just caught. Now, that's completely different than people who enjoy fish in an aquarium. How many of you have ever owned an aquarium? Yeah, Probably looks like more of you have owned an aquarium. An aquarium takes a different skill. In an aquarium, you want to make sure you have it full of beautiful, bright colored fish. Just the right type of fish. You can't get two of the wrong type of fish in there because there's certain fish that will eat other fish, right? So you want to have the right kind of fish, beautiful, colorful fish. You want the water to be a certain temperature, a certain pH balance. You want the rocks to be nice and colorful on the bottom. You want one of those uh, plants that's growing up in the, in, the, uh, in the aquarium. You want to feed the fish, clean the cage. You don't want too many fish and make it feel too crowded, but you don't want too few fish and make it feel too empty. That's the way you keep care of an aquarium. Now, a question I want to ask this morning is this. It's a question I ask churches all across America. Is the church more like fishers of men or keepers of the aquarium? 
You hear me? Because I think it's easy sometimes for us to say, we want the right kind of fish. We don't want to get the fish that are going to fight one another. We want to keep the temperature just right. We want to make sure they're fed. We don't want too many fish and it be too crowded, but we don't want too few fish and make it feel too empty. Just keep it clean. Keep the right temperature. Keep it nice and pretty. And everyone would admire the beautiful aquarium. Has God called us to be fishers of men or keepers of the aquarium? You see, these men knew that God had called them to go seek fish and bring them to him. And so that's what they do. They get their friend and they pick him up and they start to bring him to Jesus. They start to bring him to Jesus. And as they're coming here, it says in verse 3, When men came, bringing him to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them, since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. It probably took them a while to get there. The man's heavy. They're carrying him on a mat. They've got a ropes tied to each corner, and they're trying to bring him to Jesus. But by the time they get to the house, the house is so crowded. So many people have come to see Jesus that they cannot even get to Jesus. So they're met with disappointment. Now, the man on the mat knew what it was like to have disappointment. He had been disappointed most of his life. He couldn't dance. He couldn't walk. Maybe he couldn't work. But these men are met with a decision, an obstacle. We want to take our friend to Jesus, but it doesn't look like we're going to be able to do it. So they had some decisions they could make. They could have turned around and walked back home. They could have left him right there and said, well, we brought you this far. It's up to you to make it the other way. But no, they were bent on bringing him to Jesus. They said, We've already carried him this far. He's going to have to walk himself back home. But they've got to come up with a plan. And I'm picturing these four guys um, as just these four country guys. Billy and Tommy and Bubba and Willie. And they're packing their friend to Jesus. And Bubba's sitting there and he goes, hey, boys, I think I got me an idea. Tommy, that's first, or Bubba, that's the first time you've had an idea in about three years. Well, I think I got me one. I didn't see no security cameras out back. I know we can't go through. What if we go up? Well, it might work, Bubba. So these old four country boys, they start walking up on top. They're in Galilee, so they are country boys, walking up on top of the roof, and they come up with a plan. Maybe we can dig a hole in the roof and lower him down to be with Jesus. And so that's the plan that they come up with. So picture the scene. They're up on top of the roof. And they start to dig through the roof and they, they are um, waiting and wanting to lower the, their friend to Jesus. Now, this is very interesting to me. I find it interesting. This same story appears in both the books of Mark and Matthew. But there's, they're identical except for one little tidbit of information that Mark adds that Matthew does not add. Now, Mark, we believe, was written by John Mark, who was a companion of Peter. So we think a lot of the book of Mark may have come from eyewitness accounts of, of Peter. Remember, they're in Peter's hometown. So they're likely maybe in a house of Peter's house or a family member of Peter's house. And the only difference in the book of Mark and the book of Matthew is the book of Mark includes the part about the hole in the roof. But I think it's interesting that Peter wanted to make sure that's included in the gospel. 
My mother-in-law was pretty upset. I had to pay good money to fix that hole in the roof. He wanted to make sure that was in there. So you see the humanity of the Bible coming together. So these guys are, are digging through the hole, digging through the roof. It says in verse four, since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Picture it like a movie. Jesus is there in the house teaching. When all of a sudden you see debris start to fall from the ceiling, people look up. Jesus, it catches his attention as a spot of light comes through the roof. And he looks up in the middle of the room and there he sees four hillbilly heads looking down a hole at him down in the house, smiling. And then they put their friend through the hole. They've got the mat tied with four ropes, one on each corner. And each of them are holding a piece of the rope, lowering their friend down to Jesus. And picture the scene. If you're in a movie, this is when the music starts to play as this, this man coming down. It's coming down like Garth Brooks in a concert right there for Jesus. And Jesus walks over to him. The man who hasn't walked in perhaps years, maybe decades. The man who came to Jesus to be healed. The man who wants the use of his legs. He's got faith that Jesus can heal him. His friends want him to walk back home. The man is lowered down on the mat. And Jesus comes over to him. The Lord of all creation. The one who heals the lame and, and gives sight to the blind. He puts his hands on the man. And they're lowering him down on the mat. And he says... Your sins are forgiven. Say what? Bubba's like, did he say anything about the legs? <laughs> Nothing but the legs, just about sin. Was he going to do anything about the legs? I don't know. He just said something about sin. And the, men, the friends have to be confused. We brought him here to have his legs healed. And you're talking about sin? I mean, he wants to walk. Jesus, maybe you don't know that he's paralyzed. The mat is not just a prop. We literally had to lower him down on that because he could not walk into the house, Jesus. Maybe he does, doesn't know. And the people in the crowd who likely would have known this man, they're in a small town of Capernaum, are thinking, well, maybe Jesus, he's kind of new to Capernaum. He doesn't know that, that, that this guy is paralyzed. Maybe someone needs to tell him. Even the disciples, Peter's like... We need a little hill yay on the mat today, Jesus. It's like, John, does, does Jesus just not know that the man's paralyzed? And John's like, I, I don't know. He comes to Thomas, and Thomas, do you think Jesus is going to heal him? And Thomas is like, I doubt it. I mean, it's obvious, isn't it, what the man needs? He can't walk. He's got an obvious problem. And they knew that Jesus could fix his problem. They brought him to Jesus to have his legs healed, but Jesus did not do what, he, what they expected. And here's a question. What do you do when Jesus does not do what you expect him to do for you? The most obvious thing for Jesus to do is to heal the man. Could it be 
that Jesus knows of an even greater need that the man has? You see, Jesus knew that the man's greatest problem was not his inability to walk, but his inability to walk with God. That's his greatest problem. Heal the man so he can walk again. What does that do? It just gives him the ability to walk into hell. But Jesus is thinking, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make him free of sin so he can be healed forever in heaven. You see, the Bible tells us that the primary reason for Jesus' coming is not for the healing of the body, but it's for the healing of the heart. Jesus cared about the legs. We see later, Jesus is not disinterested in the man's condition. He heals the man. But Jesus shows us first and foremost what he's chiefly concerned about is the man's heart. And the same's true of you. The same's true of our world. You know, we talk about all the problems in our world. Identity confusion and the economy and poverty. That's not the greatest problem in the world. The greatest problem in the world is that people are lost. In fact, Paul Chitwood, president of International Mission Board, says that every day, based on their population statistics, there's about 171,315 people that die every single day having not trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior. That is the world's greatest problem. And Jesus knows the man that his greatest problem is not his legs, his greatest problem is his heart. And so that's why Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. The greatest problem is met by Jesus. Now, it says here in verse 6, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking then to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're thinking a good question because that's very true. No one can forgive sin but God alone. But here's the great news. Jesus is God. And what those teachers don't know is that just in a very short time, Jesus is going to the cross. And when he gives his life on the cross and raises from the dead, he has given the authority to forgive your sin and my sin. Because he died as an atoning sacrifice for our sin on the cross. Immediately, verse 8, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? See, Jesus is so amazing, he wins even a silent argument. He knows what they're thinking. I want you to know, you can fool me, but you can never fool Jesus. He knows exactly what you're thinking at this very moment. And he asks them a question, which is easier? Which is easier? To say, take up your mat and walk? Or to say your sins are forgiven. To say take up your mat and walk costs Jesus seven words in two seconds. But for him to say your sins are forgiven costs Jesus his entire life. First he forgives the sin of the man. Then he changes the man's body. Jesus is showing us that this healing is a picture of his power and the salvation at work in the man's life. It says there in verse uh, 10. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. 
This amazed everyone as they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Jesus is showing us that healing is a picture of salvation. It's an illustration of salvation. And just as the man had paralyzed legs and Jesus healed them, he's showing them, here's what happened physically, but I want to show you what's happened spiritually. He came to me with a paralyzed heart, a heart of stone, but I forgave his sin and gave him new life. And so the healing is a picture of what Christ has done spiritually. It's also an example of Christ's sovereignty, his authority over all things in all of creation. We see that first Jesus forgives his sins and then he makes him walk. First God changes his heart and then he changes us, not the other way around. A lot of times we can say to ourselves, well, you know, if um, Lord, if you heal me of this sickness, I'll follow you. If you cause my wayward son to return home, then I'll make you my Lord. Lord, if you heal my marriage, then I promise that I'm going to submit to your authority. We get it the other way around, don't we? God, if you fix this about my life, then I'll give you my heart. But what we see here in Mark chapter 2 is first Jesus wanted the man's heart, and then he went about fixing his life. I don't know what brought you here this morning. I don't know what mat you are lying on. Maybe it was a group of friends that brought you here. Maybe you're watching online and a friend told you you need to check out the service this morning and you're doing that. And maybe you come here because you want something from Jesus. Your marriage is struggling. Your parenting is struggling. You've got a sickness. Your bank account's struggling. You come wanting Jesus to fix it. And Jesus cares. Hear me, Jesus cares so much. But he wants to take care of your greatest need first. And that's your need for him. Remember, Jesus was not first concerned about his inability to walk. He was concerned about the man's inability to walk with him. And this morning, Jesus wants you to walk with him. If you're here today and you say, but Pastor Michael, I, I have a paralyzed heart. I've yet to give my life to Jesus. And in a few minutes, we're going to have a time of invitation. During that time, we're going to invite you to come down and say, hey, I want to follow Christ. I'd like to, I'd like to be baptized. I'd like to give my life over to him as the Lord and Savior that I know he is. I want him to heal my heart and fix my greatest need, the need for forgiveness. Or you can meet us at Connection Center, or you can even text us if you're watching online. You can text the word today to 270-398-5005. That's the word today to 270-398-5005. And as soon as you do that, very short time after that, one of our ministers are going to call you and share how they want to serve you and, and how they can help share with you about Christ and what he can do in your life. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, I want to ask you this question. Who are you carrying to Jesus? Who are you carrying to Jesus? So one Sunday morning, that dairy farmer picked up those girls from across the street, put them in her car, and was driving to church. When she decided to stop at that house where their cousins lived, she pulled into the driveway, walked up to the door, knocked on the door, 
And a young mom and young dad and their two boys, about four and six years old, runs to the door. When you live out in the country and somebody knocks, everybody comes running. And the dairy farmer explained who she was and that she taught Sunday school at a church not far from there and that she ran a dairy farm up the road from them. And saw the four and six-year-old boy and said to the parents, would your boys like to go to church? Now, the parents were believers, but they were not attending a church at that time. And they said, well, sure, you can take our boys to church. Over the next few weeks, that dairy farmer would knock by that same, knock on that door at that same house. And she'd take those two boys, four and six years old, put them in her vehicle and take them to church where she taught Sunday school and would teach them about Jesus. Well, after a few weeks of doing that, the parents thought, well, we don't want someone else taking our kids to church. We'll start going to church. And they start going to church and teaching their kids about Jesus. The mom became a Sunday school teacher. The dad ended up becoming a, a deacon. And five or six years later, that four- and six-year-old boy got saved, got baptized. A few years after that, that six-year-old boy was now a teenager, and he felt called to ministry. And the pastor of that little church let that boy preach. He had seen the boy change so much from the age of six to now 15 or 16. And the parents were there cheering him on the whole time. Boy felt called to ministry, went on to college, uh, went to seminary, started preaching as an evangelist, and then became a pastor. And then one day, a little six-year-old boy who was invited to church by a dairy farmer, became the interim pastor at Lone Oak First Baptist Church. Sometimes I shudder to think, what would have happened if this dairy farmer had not knocked on my door at six years old And said, would your boys like to go to church? What would have happened if I didn't have two parents who were convicted to raise my brother and I up in a godly Christian home? What would have happened if it hadn't been for a faithful pastor who gave me the opportunity to preach when I was a teenager? And maybe there's a little six-year-old boy who lives on Clinton Road or Buckner Lane or North 9th Street, who's just waiting for somebody from this church to knock on his door and ask, would your boy like to go to church? I'm thankful for that dairy farmer in my life. And I want to encourage you to be like her and bring people to Jesus. Let's stand and pray, shall we? Father, we're here because something brought us here. For some people, that was a mother or father. For others, that was a faithful group of friends that carried our mat to you. For still others, it was because of the testimony of a teacher or a 
grandparent or a coworker that made us decide to, to follow you, Lord. And for those of you here today who have yet to follow Jesus, I pray you would convict our hearts and bring us to have our greatest need met, the need for forgiveness. And for those of us who have known Christ for a long time, God, would we recall what brought us to church, Father, what brought us to you? That day when we were brought to you, Father, and will you prompt us to be people who are deeply committed to bringing people to Jesus? We give you the praise and honor that's through your name, Father, as we worship you. In the name of Christ, we pray.